This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Not so bad. I feel myself getting hoarse. You know, a leading practice... I hate the term best practice. A leading practice for when you visit the desert is to stay hydrated, drink lots of water. So what am I doing? I'm drinking lots of coffee. Yeah, that makes sense. Does that work? I mean, it's liquid. <laughs> I mean, all business travel is just the management of fluids and taking output of three primary fluids, water, caffeine, alcohol. alcohol. Mix the blends. And like, that's all business travel is. The rest is just traipsings. And yeah. Vegas has it all in spades. So, mm-hmm. and you but, could do a uh, espresso martini and hit all the above. You can get all the food groups. Yeah, <laughs> get all the food groups. <laughs> all right, well, let's jump right into it because obviously Ian is already here. Did you, I break a, a you convention? Broke down, I bre- like like who is this? This weird. We're voice? not supposed to speak until spoken to. Here. You have a prettier. <laughs> yes, yes. Shut up. Okay. <laughs> um, we've got Ian Glazer. He's the founder and president of Weave Identity. I think this is the fifth iteration, maybe of introductions that we've done for you welcome back to the show ian you can never have too many emails mm-hmm. that's just that's just really thank you guys i really it's it's really an honor to be here thank you so much well thanks for taking the time i mean you've been you know a great friend for the show you've done a lot of different stuff and now you've started something new yeah. weave identity weave identity what the hell's going on over there well uh it comes from a realization that um i really like helping people build things like i like helping people build product and solutions Number one. Number two, I do identity okay. Uh, and number three, I do product management and being a product executive okay. So bundle all that together, what do you get? And so the goal is to help to start probably growth stage companies, either formulate what their product vision will be, work on product strategy, up-level their product management skills, their analyst relations skills, do that in this domain or near adjacent, and see where it goes. What I want to have is some long-term relationships with some really cool people and building really cool stuff and try my hand at it. I have never worked in a services capacity before. I've never worked for myself before. Um, so you might as well just like try all the new things at once. And I don't know. No. Um, but so what is that fun. new email? Is it weaveidentity at AOL.com? <laughs> you know, um, I was rocking the GeoCities, but um, yeah, it's going to be AOL. Yeah. <laughs> Taking my game to AOL. We'll have a show link for people to connect with you through that. But I feel like George Fletcher just got like a warm and fuzzy. Yeah, like right. I'm thinking like AOL, AOL a prodigy. Ooh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, fun fact my brother racked up an enormous, for the time, American online bill because of playing online video games. The Shadow of Euserbius was a role playing game. And back then, it was everything's by the hour. Mm. And he was logged in all the time. And my dad, I thought he was I thought I was going to have one less brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was prohibitively expensive. But you have been talking a lot here. We're still at Identiverse. This is actually the last of our Identiverse twenty twenty three shows, which is kind of cool. Kind of closing out, going out on a high note, as George Costanza would say. But this morning you had a keynote sort of panel where we talked about chief identity officer. Yeah. And really, a lot of the shows we've been been recording this week has been around this idea of sort of Nostradamus, Nostradamus week, as Jim has been coining it, kind of predictions for the future. And this is a session that I actually highlighted, um, I believe it was a couple episodes ago. Yeah, before coming here. Before coming yeah. here, it was like, okay, this is something that's kind of interesting. And my position going into this was, that sounds like a good idea to me. Anything that raises the visibility of identity and having it having a seat at the table uh, and having more, I don't know, juice, power, whatever that looks like, right? And you guys brought up some interesting points that I want to get into from the conversation you had with others on the stage. I guess, where do you stand today? Does the, does the IM space need a chief identity officer? Why or why not? And I'd love to hear the why nots, because I think there were some interesting things that I didn't, hadn't thought about. So... I proposed this this topic to Andy Hindle, conference chair, and said, we've been kicking this idea around he and I for like a year. Like, I really kind of want to poke at this thing. And I truly vacillate on where I 
where my answer lives because the more I think about it, I either talk myself out of it or into it. And the way I started thinking about this, truth be told, was, uh, hey, where's ours? Which is not maybe the healthiest place to start, but I looked at this and said, like, look at all of the things that we touch and we enable in the enterprise. We as identity practitioners, where is our C-level representation? And that matured, thank goodness, over time. But it then became a little bit more refined, which is, well, if there was a role, the place I'm now starting to come from is, what data would it have custodial concerns about? And this is where things get really challenging because, well, is that if I'm doing workforce identity, I care greatly about HR data, the quality of that data and protecting that information and then applying that information for what I do. And if I'm in SIAM, if I'm on the customer side, well, does that extend all the way into the CRM system, into the MarTech systems? It doesn't feel like that's actually a viable answer, but I'm really interested in that information because it's going to enable these outcomes and it's going to power the machinery that I am building. And so I made this statement this morning is like, well, it's kind of like the chief oxygen officer. Like we, like we know, we know identity is needed for everything. It's like oxygen. You're probably not going to get a C-suite role just because you're viable, right? In all these different places, like also being the chief electron officer, I suppose. But the reason why I think there has to be some form of representation at the highest ranks of an organization is because when alignment and priorities are being set, whatever that cadence is, however the organization, public or private, does this, you've got to have someone at the table saying, there are dial tone services, you need to make this happen. And that can be growing the top of your funnel by making customer acquisition faster and easier and taking out friction of that process through SIAM, or it's um, risk reduction in a workforce context. You need these dial tone services. They need their own representation in these priorities because they are a component of so many of these things. So it's, the more I get to it, the more I think about like, I don't know if I need to see title. What there does need to be is a way for the practitioner and the discipline to be represented in those circles at priority setting time and resource allocation time with their own callouts, because folding them, folding those identity needs into other places, like saying, oh, well, workforce will sort it out because the CIO focuses on these things and the CISO gives them sort of insight on how to do it, doesn't then touch also like, what are data quality initiatives happening in our HR systems? And how is that gonna impact these things down there? Those don't get coordinated unless you elevate this up and say, look, this is the this is the grist for the mill. It's the HR data, it's the customer data. Who's responsible for quality? How is it flowing? What protection concerns do we have? How do we want to use it? So you got to have someone there, at least I think, to represent those concerns and help in the alignment process. So I think most of the time, identity seems to fall under security. And there's already a chief security officer or information security officer, should say. Is this... Some might feel like this is an indictment that the CISO is not representing I am enough. And I don't know if that's fair because I think there's some that are very good and some that aren't and or maybe not as an expert right in the identity space, which I think is really where the, the, the crux of it comes is does your CISO, if your CISO understands identity and gets it and it's part of their vernacular versus maybe a historical CISO who is I'm a network guy, I'm a firewall guy, right? That sort of thing. I guess, where do you see that conversation taking place? Well, this is a security technology. Why would they have yeah, a separate? Yeah. So I think a lot of security practitioners believe that the totality of identity is authentication and therein ends the conversation. Obviously, it's a gross disservice, but it actually limits the security applications of what identity can do, let alone what it can do for SIAM and all these other things. So... I tend to, and I know this is horribly stereotypical, I don't think security people get identity. They really don't. They're like, oh, this is an authentication thing, and we'll make it stronger, we'll do more of it, and <laughs> yeah, no, chill. Um, so I don't think it's actually an issue of the CISO representing identity. I think it is because, it, yes, there is a component of that, and that is a subset of the actual capacity of what we can do as practitioners and what the technologies can do. But... The difference, and the CISO is a unique one, where that individual, in this case, Dr. Heather Hinton, who was on the panel with us, they have board access. Now, that can be a very 
stressful and challenging thing, but at least you can be in the room and talk about programs, progress, and what are the top concerns organizations have. Privacy officers, and this is what my good friend Heidi Wax was talking about, kind of a similar boat, but they don't necessarily always have that board access. They haven't been always fully enabled within an organization to do the things that maybe they need to do to better protect all of the kinds of information that they have from the perspective of privacy and stay current in, in how the practices are working. So I don't think it's a representation problem. I think the larger challenge is that the, those dial tone services that make up an enterprise today are security, privacy, identity. That's bedrock. Frankly, no matter almost what industry you are in, with possibly extremely few uh, uh, sort of exceptions, and those services get taken for granted. I don't mean sort of abused in the organization. What I'm just saying is like, well, yeah, it, it'll just, it's an it'll, assumption it'll, just, it'll just work out, right? Like, because we don't think about um, the chairs in our office space and how that's affecting productivity. I mean, I bet someone does actually in real estate, but like, that's not a common conversation. Well, there'll be chairs. Of course, there'll be chairs in the offices. Duh, why not? Of course, there'll be some identity, privacy, security events. Um, and changing that sort of notion, I think, can't be said as a failure of the CISO. It can't be said as a failure of the CPO. I think it is more about how we think about our enabling technologies in enterprise that changes people's perspective of these are tools for growing our market, being more competitive, being more efficient, what have you. And um, that's a top-down thing. But boards are just now being pushed to learn about cybersecurity. Yeah. They've kind of been forced to do that for privacy by way of things like GDPR. That hasn't happened for identity. That's why I wonder if this is an education thing for the boards to say, hey, we really should be thinking about this. Because I think one of the one of the comments on stage this morning was, well, boards are mostly focused on financials. I can't think of anything more catastrophic to a company to, to get breached. <laughs> and we, loss of confidence when the consumer, the loss of the data itself, that seems to me like that would have some pretty high financial ramifications. But by the time it reaches a board... And having participated in building board decks for Arciso in my prior life, what gets there is here are the 10 top-level risks from an IT perspective that the CISO is tracking on behalf of the subcommittee of the board. Now, hiding in there is probably user provisioning and IEG and MFA and those kinds of things. But what gets to the board is so synthesized upward. And this is not a fault of the way people interact with boards. It's just because... If you enumerated every single little part of every single business, you'd be sifting through it like sand on the beach, right? There's so many little parts. So by the time it keeps getting summarized and summarized. So it's there, but it's never, I don't think it's necessarily a focus of the board. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more that next tier down, the C-level saying, we are going to leverage everything to our advantage. Again, public sector, private sector does not matter. What can we bring to bear? And are we getting the most out of those things? And I think more than anything else, I'm coming around on the education side to say, you're missing out by not fully expressing this capability in your teams and in your technologies. And this is what it unlocks. I've got a statement, a question, and some comic relief. So statement, five years ago, seven years ago, there was no chief privacy officer, or it was at this stage of conversation. 15 years ago, there was no CISO, or it was at this level of conversation. And I was in IT five years before that, you know, 20 plus years ago. And smart, I, I've talked about this, smart, and I'm doing air quotes, smart executives would question like, oh, you wanna spend money on information security? Like, how does that help me ship more product or make more money? And they didn't understand risk at the time at least from, they didn't understand technology risk. So I could see kind of the same business case building for this is like, what happened with information security? Companies started getting attacked and losing big numbers. And now nobody even questions the idea of having a chief information security officer. In fact, if you hear about a company of any substantial size and they don't have one, you would just be stunned 
But again, 15 years ago, they're about to have one. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, this is a good tweak on an old adage, right? Like, there's two kinds of companies, those who have been breached, those who are about to. Like, there's the two mm-hmm. kinds of companies, either those who have sizzles or ones That's who That's funny. You say it. So say it again, the way you said it. Because I've two heard kinds it of companies, way. Those who have been breached and those who are about to be. So or I, those who know it is the other That's one the here. one that I do it. Yeah. So it's the, the two kinds of companies. Ones that have breached and ones that don't know it yet is yeah. the way that I was. But interesting. Okay. So, and the chief privacy officer concept, I think, came along around the same time GDPR was coming along. It's like companies are actually starting to lose money because they're having privacy breaches or not even, yes, there's the breaches that cause the big fines, but also just the embarrassment of giving up private data or storing data that they shouldn't be storing. So my question was chief identity officer, who do they report to? Because I think this is the same question about the CISO. Like, do they report to the CIO, yeah. CFO, COO, CRO, so, risk yeah. officer? Digital. So I think it depends. I'm going to come back to it. depends on what data they have custodial oversight for. And so if this role owns the customer profile, i.e. the information that the individual has provided, whatever that customer may be, it may be B2B, it may be B2C, what have you. That's a really pivotal question because I can see some organizations saying marketing, digital, own the customer profile and identity, you own the use thereof, essentially downstream and those flow into our business processes and privacy officer, you need to be shoulder to shoulder to make sure we're doing the right things here and security officer, you know, ensure that this hasn't been tampered with, remain secret, et cetera. If it does include the profile, now you're in a point where like, ooh, should this role be part of digital? And then if you go that route, then it's like, yeah, but you also own workforce. So, so, and I think the place I'm coming back to on this is there is a, we see in organizations a devaluation of titles or said indifferently, like, Hey, the That's joke right. used to be like, oh yeah, more VPs than a bank, yeah, right? Like, like everybody's yeah. a VP. Um, and that, I get how that happens, sure. But I want it to mean something, right? And so what the mean something is really about, like, do you have the opportunity to open the door in this tier of an organization at the times that are right? When we're setting priorities, when we're realigning, when we're allocating resource. May not matter, right? And this is kind of um, Heather's point is, like, May not be there, right? Like if a CISO, CISOs don't often sit directly reporting to the CEO. Depends on the kind of company. Sometimes they're under engineering or technology or what have you. Like, so I think that this person, if it's one, right? If they own the whole gamut, I think in theory they can report anywhere so long as they have that access and the relationship owning and the ability to do that. It could be your cybersecurity architect. Like, so there are people walking around here who are dyed in the wool identity practitioners. But if you look at their titles, it's like chief cybersecurity architect. Why? Because that's how the business interprets the need like pay, and pay grade title. Some of that too. Some of that too. So, um, I think I'm coming around to, I don't think this is actually a, a role. There's a need for influence and there's a need for advice and counsel, but I think that can live in a variety of places in the organization and the organization's own culture and structure will sort some of that stuff out for better or for worse. And it may not be advantageous, but it will come out in the wash. Maybe be a case of be careful of what you ask for. Yeah. So comic relief is what does this role get called? So Andy Hindle in his keynote yesterday said, how many people say CISO and how many people say CISO? So Chief Identity Officer, Chief ID Officer, Cheeto. That's what I say, Cheeto. Cheeto. <laughs> you just changed uh, you Ian's heard mind. It here now he's like, we no, definitely no, need a Cheeto. I need me some of that. Like, I want one of those. I'd like a whole bag of Cheetos, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, that's. I guess that's the collective noun. If you have a conference, you know, <laughs> we, we cast forward 10 years now, everybody is a 
cheap identity. Cheeto awesome. world. Everyone's a Cheeto. And so like, well, what do you call the bus that takes you from the venue to the party? Well, that would be a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> a bag of Cheetos. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a good enough reason just to just let's do this thing. So um, switch topics. I uh, want to get your Nostradamus view on things, we'll call them active clients. So mobile clients and browsers, password managers, which have, well, the password's dead, right? So we can just get rid of password managers, of course. Just like Samuel's dead. <laughs> that which is dead may never die. And digital wallets. What yeah. say you? So, so going back a couple of years, I've been thinking about like, how do we get a leverage point closer to the human that can act on their behalf to do some of the more complicated things that happen in our processes, in, in identity processes? And I actually cannot take credit for this original idea because if you spool all the way back to the first IIW where Kim Cameron is demoing InfoCard and there are there are just these huge brains walking around IIW. And remember after seeing that demo, I had just met Dick Hart for probably the second time, so reintroduced to him. And I remember sitting down and he was like, yeah, you know, Timo's interesting. He's like, yeah, you know, maybe active clients are really the answer here. Maybe we do need something closer to the individual that is not just a passive window into a service, like just a browser, especially how they were that many years ago. Before what, we go too further, what do you define as an active client? Because I, I want to make sure we don't lose people. Yeah, so I'm thinking about an active client is it is something that's that is near to the human that's doing the interactions, and it can be like the things you know we listed out. It could be your mobile operating system. It could be your browser, password manager, digital wallet. Essentially, it is the interface between you and that service for a certain context. Now, maybe viewing and interacting with. It may also be, and this is where I talked about this on Tuesday, um, brokering a recognition process. Now, that starts today as, oh, I can form fill your password in, or I can hand a passkey off from a secure enclave to the other service. So that active client notion is that thing that's close to the individual that is helping to uh, facilitate some kind of interaction. In the identity context, it manifests itself. Password managers are really good sort of pure play, if you will passkey and how the mobile operating system presents WebAuthn tokens. Um, and wallets, I think, present a kind of opportunity as well in this regard. But more and more I think about it, we need an agent essentially acting on behalf of the individual to help broker the more complex parts of how they interact with identity so that they don't have to know about it. Um, and the problem is we expose way too many things in identity-related functions, especially in consumer stories, that people have to know about. And that's that's actually a, a real problem. Like years ago when I was with Burton Group, we were doing some research and I was helping out a friend working, doing some research on PKI. And he was looking at basically like just the hall of failed deployments. Like here's like a museum of like, here's your father's certificate and it was never actually properly used. But what he found, and I this is totally true in identity as well, is the closer the user is to the private key material, the more likely the initiative will fail. The more that an individual has to know about the plumbing, the more likely it's going to fail. Why? Because they don't, they're not plumbers. They don't care about the plumbing. That is not what they're trying to do. They're just trying to get to the other side of whatever this hurdle is they've seen before us. And so browsers allow us to see that content and gets over the hurdle of getting content from wherever it may be. Password managers do the same thing in the sense of like, all right, they're going to handle the login process so you don't have to worry about it. And the promise of passwordless and the promise of, frankly, usernameless is that thing too. So as I think about the concept where I've been focused on recognition versus authentication, we need something to help that process along. And it's interesting that things like EIDAS and what's going on with open wallets and all the initiatives that are happening in Europe, but also we're seeing here, is actually driving this conversation forward of saying like, hey, there's got to be some form of standardized way that we can present credentials or keys passwords or what have you. So I think this is a bit of an inevitability. Um, but the important thing is people shouldn't really have to see and know about them. If it's, if it has to be transparent in the way they're interacting with services. Um, and there's a lot yet to be done. If you start thinking about, well, if Apple does really release these 
virtual goggles and we're all just now strapped in all the time. Vittorio um, and I are waiting with bated breath for these just FYI. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But like, what does it mean to authenticate in that context? Yeah. Like, do I start with a keyboard in like neat space? Like type it, type it, type it, type it. Okay, good. Put on the glasses. Well, how do I, I mean, what? Then, then you're significant other. Let me try those. Yeah. Sorry, they don't work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure there'll you be hope. iris scanning and a bunch <laughs> of other fun things. It'll be super cool. But, um, but the same point is like, mm-hmm. As we adopt more modalities for interacting with information technology, and I'm putting that in quotes, like we need to adopt the client. The clients need to mature so that individuals don't know, have to know how the plumbing works. That's right. Well, that's the best security and the best experiences, right? Or is, is that thing. It's just magic. It just works. Just works. Well, it just feels like at this conference, like what really took me back was the unanimity in support of FIDO Alliance, FIDO 2, everything that those folks were going to pass keys. It's just like, what what surprised me was that it's just like universal, like, yes. Yes, and um, that there is, and this is something that Nishant Kaushik talks about a lot, which is, yes, pass keys, great. But there are definitely use cases and scenarios, and I talked about this a little bit, like people that cannot represent themselves, or people that don't have access to, as David Lee was saying, a thousand dollar cell phone can't be the answer to all of our technological problems. So pass keys are great, but they do not expand the ability for the entire sort of world to interact with these services. So we're not there yet. Pass keys are important. I think it is the most important hint, if you will. In a is that a bridge process. technology to the future, or is it where we're going is to pass keys? Pass keys is the it's part the of the overall solution. story, but it doesn't, it is still exclusive. And by that, I mean, it is people with a thousand dollar cell phone, mm-hmm. or it is people with this kind of computer or these kinds of things. And so very, very powerful. Let me be extremely clear about that. But it doesn't get us to universal access to the people that need services from their local government to private corporation. And so the, where the, where it has to get to. And let me be clear, I don't know what that is entirely. I've got some ideas. Has to be inclusive of all of those addressable markets. Again, I'm putting that in quotes, but like everyone should be able to participate in this kind of world, mm-hmm. which is a hybrid of digital and analog. And every selection we make in technology has some exclusivity to it. Oh, you're not a person in this social network, so you can't sign it on this service. Oh, you don't have a fingerprint reader on your phone, so you can't use pass keys, right? And Great, so we have to collect a bunch of those so we can get total coverage, right? Meaning everyone can participate because that is what the future ought to look like. Yeah. We talked with Andre Durand and you know he brought up the, the very salient point. Everything can be used for good and bad, basically. Kind of paraphrase it. And I see the good in pass keys. Right, hey, we're trying to kill a password. Theoretically, it's been dead for 20-something years now, but still. it's still there. But it can also create a further digital divide. What if we start building services that require a pass key and you have this order of operations. Well, I need this certain thing. I must be this tall to ride or I must have this device, whatever it may be. So I think, you know, making sure that we don't forget about that is an important part of this rollout because you're totally right. The democratization of access should not be for the people who can afford an iPhone or an Android or there needs to be some better way to do that. You touched on something and it occurs to me that often when technologists talk about the democratization of X, they're talking about the accessibility of people similar to themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is where things like what women in an identity are doing with their inclusion It needs to be way more universal. Should be almost a right. On what you think this needs to be able to do and the democratization is a far bigger set of of constituents than typically people think about. I think I have the answer. You're born Mm -hmm. and you're handed a FIDO key. Hardware? Yeah. Okay, so here's the problem with that. You're born, Mm -hmm. as soon as you figure out how to stick things in your mouth, you will inevitably swallow something. Now you're biohacking. No, no, you're just eating a fun toy. Now we already (laughs) know, and like people that make these keys are like, no, 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 they've come out the other end of dogs and they still work. So I guess, but like, no. Well, I think there's also the crowd that thinks if you were to put a chip under yep. the person's skin, that tracking if you have a problem with that, then you're a tinfoil hat. And I don't think that's really 
I don't think it's that black and white, right? We've gotten somewhat there, right? And I'm looking around the room. Two of us are wearing Apple watches. And they're like monitoring our thing. I do not like wearing a you watch. You don't like wearing watches. But that's nothing to do with that. But we already are kind of that. Now, obviously, we are technologists. And we're probably looking at that in different ways. But there are things that we're already doing that I don't think people realize. Like, oh, that's a biometric device on my wrist. I can unlock my MacBook that's sitting in front of me. Which I, is, by the way, based on a four-digit pin. So that does kind of undercut the password, which is really long that you have on the device. Right. But at any rate, neither here nor there. Let's go to the next topic, and because we're talking about the future a lot, and I think about innovation in this market. One of the examples that I look at is IGA. And for better or for worse, I'll point at Gartner. They have stopped doing magic quadrants. And I asked them on stage at the last Gartner, where we were fortunate enough to get on there and talk with Henrique and Becky, um, who won? Is IGA over with? Where's the innovation? Because there is no more magic quadrant, so therefore... The last one was the last known winner, I guess. Now, if you talk to anybody, ourselves included, and Gartner themselves, they would say you should not be using a magic quadrant for your buying decision. It should be another point of data, whatever it may be, right? And I think hopefully people get that, but I know that there are lots of companies that look at that. So where is the innovation going to come from in some of these spaces that are quote-unquote mature? Access management, IGA, I, I love AI. I have certain ideas of how I think AI is going to manifest itself, and we'll probably get to AI here in a minute, but what are you thinking? So the observation I hit on a while back was, and this, this I don't know, this made me get some haters. It's fine. The core of identity is almost fully mature, fully commoditized, and kind of boring. Important, but nonetheless stayed, let's say. So where the innovation is going to come from is the adjacencies. And there are more and more interesting near neighbors of core identity. Both core identity, I mean, not just workforce versus consumer. I mean, both of those things. Like, both of those markets, in my mind, are reasonably stable. And so what's happening is that innovation from the edges are now the really interesting thing. So, examples. We have this wave, and it seems like it's even bigger than before, of passwordless innovation, right? What was prior to that, the wave was strong authentication. But we have passwordless. We have people that are starting to look at proofing um, as more relevant than ever in sort of classic identity. I was just talking to someone who's like, yeah, he's like, I'm really surprised how few proofing vendors are here. I'm like, are you kidding? I'm so surprised how many proofing vendors are here, right? And it's a perspective thing. But that's an important, especially as we think about credentials and where this goes. But there are these other things. So like the, the ITDR segment in the market. Again, an example of these are near adjacencies. Either they're using or act upon data that we have custodial sort of interest in for a certain end. And that typically the core identity systems give you the control points to then affect whatever those controls are. But there's some other insight or some other experience being brought in around the sides, if you will. And so partially it is the what other marketing conditions now open up, the ability to have these adjacencies. So like uh, mobile biometrics gives us the opportunity to pass key in a real meaningful way. That's pretty darn cool. Um, but that's just sort of an example or the fact that like, well, heck, we have all these signals from all of these different classic security systems that have identity implications. Well, maybe we can bring those to bear differently. And this becomes maybe ITDR, maybe some other things. So these other conditions around the identity market are really going to then foment this edge. And so honestly, one of the places that there's the greatest opportunity for innovation is actually the marketplaces for these, right? So you know, I spent nine years at Salesforce and I have this amazing third-party app marketplace, app exchange. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of apps, millions of developers. That marketplace was new, like for its time. No one had ever built this thing up. Hey, look, I'm gonna provide a route to market for technologies that are adjacent to this or built on this and we're going to make it super easy for you to contract them and install them and get going with them. That model we see in a very vendor-specific way. 
But I'm starting to see like, well, gosh, there's there's a marketplace opportunity for someone to build actually this kind of market to say like, oh, you have these central core componentry, great. Here are things that can come around the sides and give you this other enhancement. So I think the marketplace itself is a possible opportunity for um, innovation in and of itself. Like an IEM app store. Yeah, and these other external conditions, like we've talked about the Apple goggle thing, like what's that gonna unlock? Darn, I don't know. But like that's a new market condition that if it's successful, I'm not thinking like as an anti-pattern Google Glass, uh, like that's actually gonna cause sort of people to go like, ooh, that's chocolate, I've got peanut butter, we're in business, and it's an adjacency to the core of identity. Everything needs a killer app to be able to, any product, right? It doesn't matter what it is. What is the killer app that's going to drive people to want it? I think I've talked about this a few times, where I think innovation is going to come from in these boring areas is complacency. I think the IGA market has gotten complacent because the definition is ensuring the right people have the right access or who has access to what. And that problem, for the most part, has been solved. But then if you look at, okay, maybe the definition should go further. Who has access to what and what are they doing with it? Well, now, and you've got, we know one of the biggest problems in IT is we have all these over-provisioned accounts. People have access that they don't need, that they don't use. How can you get the least privilege unless you take that away? Who is solving for that? It's these small companies that are starting up to solve for that problem. Now, they could be bought out and combined, or you could see what happened in my belief in like the access management space was that you got these companies that got so big and then smaller companies like the Pings and the Octas of the world said, hey, we're going to go out and we're going to solve this specific area that you guys aren't doing a good job at. And Next thing you know, they're the dominant players, and the yeah. ones who were the dominant players at the time are no longer exist. So another space along those lines, we just saw, so uh, you guys know and have talked about in the past, uh, ID Pro, uh, the Professional Association for Identity Management, does a skills program and diversity survey every year. And every year, Andy and Hendel and I assert, we are gonna get it done this year before Identiverse, like literally every year. I think this year was no different. Um, we do have it drafted, so that's good news. It's coming soon. Define done. <laughs> yes, but we we have the data, and one of the things that we see is we asked um, interest in different things from an enterprise perspective, your organization, and then from your personal perspective. And one of the things that blew our minds is that authorization is now somewhat interesting, in fact, more than somewhat interesting, to practitioners again. And I'm just like, what happened? And we saw more of this in the survey of like a renewed interest in authorization. Now, depending on your perspective, you're like, authorization has never really come into the way that people had hoped with fine grade access control or ABAC or hell, RBAC, like or exactable or blah, 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 blah. And yet people are like, oh crap, we still have this problem. I think there is a moment we might happen if we're talking about the future where even more of access is not provisioned at admin time. Like you have a very thin veneer of base of birthright. More just in time, ephemeral. And everything is just in time because what's different now is there are more control points. I would not say there's an infinite number of control points, but there's more control points. And people are finally addressing the means by which you describe policies and conditions and Versus saying like, hey, do you like XML? Do you really like XML? <laughs> Boy, you're gonna love Zachable. Um, and I'm actually really optimistic and genuinely curious because I used to cover fine-grained access control and I'm like, this is super cool, but mm -hmm. it's a system that allows you to do anything. And as we know, systems that allow you to do anything make it really hard to do anything. Yeah, I have a theory on why authorization has become interesting again or maybe top of mind for people. Maybe yeah. interesting is not the right word, but I feel like this is a can that's been kicked down the road for a very long time, and we've caught up with it because we were busy solving MFA, privileged access, Sucks. basic IAM stuff like modern, you know, like yeah. life cycle, Ordering. onboarding, offboarding, and say, okay, well, now we've kind of figured that out. Well, what's next? You know, our authorizations, they've always been crap, but let's start to fix it. <laughs> Well, right, and the thing right. that's making that even more urgent is the, remember, you're talking about access policies for resources. Mm -hmm. 
right? It's not just you have read access. It's read access over what? Right. More cloud, more IaaS, more complex SaaS packages, mm -hmm. and the resources and the privileges through which you affect those controls is only growing to a point where people are like, I got no idea. Like, how do you get your arms around these things? And so that's where like the CIEM market, which is just the GRC SOD world from uh, SOX era. It's just the same thing again. It's just a take on this certain cloud provider, that certain cloud provider's vernacular mm -hmm. and made usable. But like, this is all driving the like, oh, wow, yeah. We have way more resources than ever to govern access across and doing it in a less than dynamic fashion is a lost hope. Yeah, so, so back to what I was saying about the complacency, I feel like, and I've said this to Henrique uh, over at Gartner, like, I don't think you should have gotten rid of the MQ because I don't think it's, you know, Done. I don't think a winner you, uh, has you been ever decided. You ever respond to an MQ? What's that? You ever, <laughs> ever write a response to an MQ? No, no. I'm you ever sure. had to read the response to this? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hell for everybody involved. But I'm not involved. Well, so, yeah. I, so I have to read the feel final free to swing for the fences. <laughs> the there. Final the sausage made just like the sausage. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> what? But I think the same thing is going on in the PAM market, which is uh -huh. you just mentioned CIEM. Like that's a so I feel like what that's shaking the PAM market right now. All the PAM vendors have got to rush to go and you know have a password vault and do do Kim Paul Mazzara, our friend. Our mutual friend would kill me if I say Keem again, but I'm gonna, you know, butcher that a few more times. What I was going at was was actually, you know, I think complacency will drive innovation. It will bring new companies in, which is I think where you were saying with companies coming on the edge. The other thing I wanted to bring up is I I kind of feel like a lot of vendors have now said our innovation plan is converged identity, which means that our company is going to start building all this other stuff. So you just have one throat to choke, one platform. We I did mean, this Personally, before. for me, we that is not this. an innovation. Yeah, we've, we've gone full circle. Not an innovation. It might be a good business strategy. Yeah, I mean, like, returning to the best of suite, best of breed in the identity space feels like, wow, it's it's 2002. and It's it's Oracle and CA again. I was literally going to say, like, and CA is calling. Like, you know, and and um, the, you're absolutely right. That is not... Innovation from a capabilities perspective is innovation from a business perspective, if we're being generous. Yeah. So can we talk about AI? AI. AI. Welcome AI. to AI at the center. Um, Are we just going to reveal that it, none of this is actually yeah, this three is, humans this is in a room? It's I've, been, just been, <laughs> I've been building our voice models for a very long time. I can yeah. make Jim say anything that I want at this point. You, I have so you, much audio. You were able like, to do that before. <laughs> well, I mean, on. the nice thing is that you don't need a lot of hacking like the Kayla doll that we saw earlier this week. Like, you, you actually probably couldn't go to him into saying anything. But anyway. You, you need about 15 minutes of audio to pro provide a very usable digital equivalent. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about AI in the IAM space. I am bullish on AI. I've said that before. That's a hill I'm, I'm currently dying on. I don't think I'm dying. I think people are kind of embracing it. I'm not. You're not embracing I'm just it. Kidding. I, I got to be contrary. <laughs> Somebody's got to be contrary. Do it. Um, I, but I agree feel like there with is... the previous panelists. <laughs> That's right. These don't represent our views. Um, I feel like there's a few opportunities for AI from an innovation standpoint, just in the identity space alone. Um, from a product perspective, I think about things like wizards. I want to. You're looking at me. I'm like, yes, this is. I mean, like the pointy hat kind. Or something else? <laughs> so when you go to install a product, there is a wizard that guides you through the installation process. You know, that started with please change the CD now. But I think you're talking about a more advanced. Yes, okay. exactly. And I'm thinking something that's far more advanced to say. Okay, I want to set up a connection between this system and this system. Mm -hmm. I describe an outcome, mm -hmm. and the large language model or whatever generative AI that I'm using to develop that is product specific or at least knows enough about the product to be able to generate the code, the configurations, or heck, maybe even just do it without me having to get into the guts of a control panel or an admin panel or whatever that looks like. So I think about that as a use case of an administrative helper instead of me having to know SAML or exchange open ID things right with each other. Um, I can just describe the outcome and say, here's how I want my experience to be. And it does the workflow, whatever it may be. And think about things like that as 
sort of the next stage of where I can see generative AI being used within a specific product. So I think what you're describing is, I believe there's probably a there there where low code revolution was essentially to quote my previous employer, clicks, not code. Right. And where we're heading to is conversation, not clicks. Right. And that's, that is interesting because I actually think what it does is it, on one hand, demystifies the administrative experiences for product. On the other, it also then gives you at least a reasonable starting point for a variety of other places. Now, the question is, as we are seeing in the early, we are in still the early days of all of this, the responses that we tend to get from us, these systems are plausible, mm -hmm. believable, but may not be even remotely close to correct. Right. Okay, so we're already seeing implications of this. The recent court case that a guy basically had. <laughs> the lawyer. Yeah, the lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Who I, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. But, okay, that has real significant outcomes because you're just doing this in a court of law. Now imagine that's your access control policy, right? Now I'm not trying to be like, oh, the future is all scary. I'm just right. saying like, look, a plausible place to start is way better than like, here's VI, start writing your ZACMAL policy, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously that's an improvement to start somewhere. The question is, how does that get refined over time? And I don't think that's the only place. Like, I think the the sort of administrative experience transformation, that's a big one. What else do you got for where else do you think it's happening? And another one for kind of the analytics space. And maybe this is sort of like the role mining, you know, that we've kind of been talking about in the past. And this is an area where I think this is a product differentiator. Can my... AI, which is called AI for now, adequately and accurately interpret what my people have access to and whether it's appropriate is another area. So it's kind of like, again, the wizard kind of thing is you do a user access review and you give it to some manager who has no idea what their people have access to and whether it's appropriate because it's got crappy names that IT came up with 20 years ago and we're still consuming yeah, those into Active Directory, right? For whatever reason. Right. And that filters through all your systems downstream. And, you know, one of the biggest problems with rubber stamping is, well, I don't know what it is, so I'm just going to, because I don't want to break anything, I'm just going to leave it. Now I've got a helper, Clippy, got to be better than Clippy, but Clippy on steroids. <laughs> um, There's that, no better than Clippy. <laughs> right. Uh, that sits in the corner what and says, right? I have questions about this. I want to have, a, you know, I don't know what this means. Can you take this and synthesize the information down to something that I can understand so, and make a, a, a good decision on. So that, that feature is a fantastic feature, but it's built on a lie. And that lie is enterprises build entitlement catalogs. They haven't. Right. And so in the lacking of that, knowing what does this AD group mm -hmm. do is dependent on, at best, either stale description data in the details or a naming convention that someone thought was a good idea 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm being a little bit No, but you're hitting but on like, the exact problems. Right, so like if we don't have material for these models to work on, then at best you'd be like, oh, it flips the light switch on in the executive washroom. Cool, no, it doesn't do that at all. It launches nuclear missiles. Like, you know, the, like we're, we don't have, that use case specifically, I think is still, you're only as good as the data and we don't have the data still. But I have an answer for that. It's my third prediction. Is that large, to be fair, we did not rehearse this. I have no we idea. Did not, yeah. we, I'd and, set you up and, on this one. And these I'm are out. not well-formed ideas. These are just things that are occurring to me as I've been having conversations and thinking about this. The third one is the idea that a large language model or a generative AI becomes a product unto its own that is specific to some area of identity. And what I mean by that is my AI is better at doing AI things than your AI is doing it better things. And I see this hub and spoke model where we've got generalized AIs, OpenAI, ChatGPT, Bing, uh, Lambda, Google Bard, right? All those things. Those serve a certain function of the experience. Now I need something that is specific to my organization and my data that is a separate model because the concern is, well, I don't want to put my data into a general model that everyone has access to, right? Training, blah, blah, blah. 
So now I'm running two models that are working in concert to come up with this experience where I'm taking advantage of one model to have a voice, a text, a video interaction with something in a secure way with data that from my environment says, oh, I did look at all your Active Directory groups. I looked at all the nestings. I looked at all the different points of data, combined it with general knowledge around OSs or platforms and blah, blah, blah. And here's what I've come up with. And it's specific. And I see that AI, for lack of a better term, being secret sauce to some degree for some folks. So I think the domain specificity, whether that domain is your enterprise or it is a business or what have you, I think there's some validity to that. And then obviously there'll be all the meta tools around it. Like, how do you train these things? What do you need? And a- a- Azure has started to roll this out. I think there's an Azure specific instance yeah. that you know Microsoft yeah. has put out there. But the thing that occurs to me is I am really concerned that as we saw with every wave of technology prior, crypto being the last big one, that like all the VC dollars just go and they fly over this place over here. Right? What's this new one? Okay, this is AI in generative space. And we tend to lose sight of the fact that we're already doing a lot of AI and machine learning. Like all of like the just good old fashioned, not even those things, statistical analysis, on cl- like cluster analysis on where your entitlements are is like, it was revolutionary when, oh my God, um, Ron Ryman's company way back before it got bought by CA, roll mining and did cluster analysis. We're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and they're like, oh, so, I mean, it's like, it's an Excel plugin now, right? Like we're already doing a lot of these things. I think the thing that I'm a little bit worried about is not so much the evils of AI. No, not at all. What I'm worried about is um, a rapid depressurization of other capital markets to go focus on this thing. And so if all the brains are going this way, like there's still good work that can be done with the existing technologies that we don't really lean enough into. We don't actually fully take advantage of. And this is maybe me in a very long way of saying, get off my lawn. But um, it is an observation that we've seen this prior in every technology market. Yeah, you see where the We're in the freak out phase. Yeah. And then it's going to be like, oh, cool. Well, now, you know, prior conversation of like, my administrative experience is so much better. Oh yeah, now I actually have something that could be, imagine your, your, the domain model like you described, capturing institutional knowledge because it could look at the implementation of the code all the way up through how entitlements are represented. And now what we're actually capturing is, it has to be more accurate than today, but plausible understanding of like, if I wiggle this, what moves over there? in our identity systems, because no one's gonna go through all that source code. No one's gonna go through all that COBOL, right? No one's gonna go through that like really old J2EE app. And I think there's some, there's definitely power there. Not necessarily as like the big old seeing brain says, well, it's about time to deprovision Ian. Uh, it's gonna be more about some of this institutional knowledge capture in its own model. I think it's a really good observation. Thank you for joining me in the get off my lawn. Later on, we'll be yelling at clouds, but it's <laughs> no, a particularly no, I, sensitive topic for me no, today. Because, but, um, no, no, the way you said it was why I'm, I didn't want to say I'm bearish on AI because I'm not, but I do fear that it's going to be the next zero trust where it's like, hey, Krispy Kreme donuts now with more AI. <laughs> you know, like Apple inside. In other words, <laughs> we just throw AI into everything and what we're doing is not yeah. Any, it's just the next evolution of our product or there's some nice technology and we're going to call it AI. So I really feel like defining what AI means. Well, I think imp- that's fair. I think that's the, that's the problem that I have with what you just said. The product has AI in it. What does AI even mean? Because if you had asked me five years ago what AI means, it's probably I'm thinking more machine learning, which is a subset of AI. You asked me today or... Within the, even within the last year, right, with the advent of the language models coming out, my definition of what AI means has changed. Right, you're thinking about generative now. And now I'm thinking in about that. Three years, it's going to be something, something else. else. And in five, yeah, right. So, look, we're technologists. The ones and zeros are friggin' fascinating. Let's not kid ourselves. But the the applications for other outcomes other than just the application is the important thing, and so. I think I'm with you a little bit on this of the like, talk to me about what the outcomes are 
that the use of thing is going to bring. And if it's like, hey, you know what? Mere mortals can now actually describe birthright provisioning processes and even set those things up. You got my attention. If it is just what, what we've seen in the past, which is like, we haven't I did any analytics. What did that mean? We got a dashboard. Mm-hmm. Like, come Look on. Look at this fancy chart. Right? Exactly. That's not, that's not AI. I'm it's sorry. It's none of those words, right? right? It's just a dashboard. But it's pretty. It's got colors and it's a chart. Yes, and it, yes. The line there's a stoplight. And well, yes. What, what I think AI can do for us really is I feel like the technology stack that we need to manage as humans keeps growing and growing and more organization, everything becomes digitized and the identity management problem becomes harder. And we are growing the field. We're getting more smart people, but it can't keep up. We've got to get to the point where AI does all the identity work and we manage the AI to do the identity work. This, so that exact point, but coming back around to active clients, why does, why do individuals have to understand how an authentication process works or how I set a static secret? But no, 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 no. Something is going to broker that experience for me. Now, those things I think is another application potentially of at least generative AI and language models, because the interaction model can be something where you need to provide your passkey. I don't know what that means. Oh. What you need to do is actually just press your thumb here, right? The ability to come back and say, tell me about this in another way. Pretend like I am X. Tell me what this means. That is really useful because that you will have identity technologies to broker the transactions. You will have an interaction layer that today primarily is sitting through the phone and system browser and system functionality. And there will be intermediate layers for brokering those kinds of interactions. And those do need to be smarter, not because they're like, oh, I've been watching and you haven't gotten enough steps today. It's more along the lines of, I can make this explainable using AI as generative right now. I can make this more explainable. I can give you an experience that helps you understand what's going on to demystify it. And I will take care of the plumbing. I got that. The more complex AI gets, or the more it can do, the more complex it gets, the fewer people who will understand it at that idiocracy, at that guts <laughs> level, right? And that's the more importance that's going to be placed on ethics and and being able to. Yeah, I'm com- gonna take us com- down that rabbit hole. No, 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 no. Com- I just got to. I'm gonna throw my comic relief in there. I was like, wait a minute. According to that sort of math, then mainframes are AI because there's like four people. Mm-hmm. Cobol, the, the 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 shadowy. They're the identity now. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're probably the Illuminati. Let's be honest. They, they run the damn world because they run the mainframes. But, uh, yes. but AI has electrolytes, so it's but fine. I, I think a big part of the AI is like you're going to have to... Idiocracy. You're looking at Oh, me right, like, right, 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 right. It's going to be Grano. It, it, has, it has electrolytes. Right. <laughs> it, either need, it, it needs to be predictable and... Yeah, Conservable. Right? Conservable, yeah. And, then and auditable. I think if those outcomes don't happen as they should have... Somebody's got to be able to figure out why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like any other tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. Let's hope that we figure out ways to use it for more good than bad. I, I don't know if you guys have seen the show Mrs. Davis. Um, I haven't yet. I've seen the trailers. I'm like, I finished well, that it. That premise is intriguing. Yes. Um, I just can't have yet another subscription service. Yeah, I know. I still, I'm still free writing from my Comcast, uh, uh, for, uh, whatever, from when I lived in the Chicago area. I don't live anymore, but they're still giving me Peacock for free. So congratulations to me, I guess. I've deep provisioning in action. Exactly. Um, but the idea of Mrs. Davis being this all-seeing AI and can basically taking over people's lives. I don't want to ruin it because it's a really interesting sort of thought process around it. And it's really well done. But I'm curious to hear what you think about it after you've seen it. Because okay. I've finished the first season. Okay. Can you give me your Comcast password? Um, it's, it's, it's Comcast actually is deep at the end of June. They're, they're taking care of everybody off of that whole thing. So yeah. um, I don't even have one. It just, it logs me in through my email and that's it. Wow. Yeah. Um, all right. We should probably start to wrap up and get things uh, going here for us. Um, Ian, you're always really great with your time. And I, I really enjoy our conversations because I never know where it's going to go. <laughs> and Spoiler I like alert, that. never and neither do I. <laughs> um, what's been your favorite or your most favorite Identiverse 2023 experience so far. 
And just so it's not awkward, I know it's being on the podcast, so it can't be this. <laughs> it has to be something else. We'll save you. Yeah, you don't have to say that. Yeah. I'll tell you, I think leaving aside the people and the old friends and the new that I get to see, two things come to mind. One is walking around the show floor and being, as I said earlier, stumped as to like, where did all these companies come from? Who are they? What's going Like, that's amazing to me because that means not only are we growing as practitioners, we're growing as an industry. There's more choice. There's more capability. There's more creativity. Wow, that's powerful. The second one is having to do with practitioners. At the beginning of every Identiverse for the last couple of years, we've done some form of an Identity 101 or Intro to Identity. It's perennially been some content that started with ID Pro. And this year, Lance Peterman, Espen Bago, I talked about this, walking by and seeing that room full, out the door full. Like, I got a little teary because that means more people are coming. More people are, are who have even been here for a while, are hungry to learn more about it. That's amazing. That's a memory. I will, that's the thing. And, and I'm going to go off a little bit on this one. Having just changed sort of my employment status and hearing about what my old teams are working on and hearing new priorities and what's not going to be continuing and what is, this has been on my mind a lot about what do you think your great works are? What are the great things that you did? And if you're picking a feature or a product release, know that those are kind of ephemeral. And I was talking to Andre about this a little bit, but seeing things like, hey, I contributed this corpus of amazing podcasts that people can hear all these cool people talk about, or we built this content that's freely available to people and they're going to learn a little bit more from it. Like you actually got to pay attention because those are the great works. And, um, it's nice, especially this week for me to see that. Jim, I don't know how, I, there's no way to top that, but no, well, I'm not going to try, <laughs> but the podcast, I mean, the four sessions that we've recorded since the opening session, I always get a little bit nervous, like, hey, what if the sessions don't go that great? We're at the end of the fourth. All four were home runs in my Bangers, book. every single one. If a podcast could be a banger, every single one this week was fantastic. Yes, I don't even know what a banger is, but I have it's to a, agree. It's a sausage. It's, it's a sausage. It's, yeah, I was going to say, Usually bangers with mash, mash, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I do, think, I do know what that kind of banger is. And uh, yeah, it's just, that's it. I mean, that's why I love that we do this because we keep putting out these episodes and we're not sure, you know, especially in the beginning, we weren't sure who's going to listen or download them. And now we meet so many people who listen to the show on the regular. We keep getting awesome guests like Ian and everyone we had this week. And man, it's just, it's I think it's like the highlight of my career, Jeff. I got to say. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, the, the, we're, this is the the last of our Identiverse 2023 episodes. And, you know, for all the people who came up and said, hey, I listen and blah, blah, blah. That's really cool. I mean, we started this four years ago, basically. And I remember our first week, we had six listens. Four of them were mine. <laughs> Me testing on different devices. And we've got now thousands of people around the world who tune in. I'm pretty confident we're the largest identity and access management podcast in the world, the galaxy, let's just call it that. And we don't do any advertising. It is all word of mouth. It's just Jim and I doing this thing. And people like Ian and Gal and Andre and who do we have before that? I'm, I'm missing even names, but all the people are Eve Mailers and Vittorios that have lent their time and their expertise to come on and talk with these two identity dorks <laughs> for X number of years. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but for the people who took the time out this week to just come up and say hello and introduce themselves, thank you so much. I don't get them as many as Jim does. Jim is way more recognizable. And maybe I'm just, I look for hair, or maybe I'm buried in my phone or something. But, you know, if you took the time to do that, it's not lost on us. And we really do appreciate it. We de definitely appreciate what Identiverse has done for us too hooking us up with a spot outside uh, after the opening keynote the first night and doing that live recording, which was a lot of fun. Um, there's always ways to make things better. We'll yeah. do it. It's always a learning and improvement Special process. Special shout out to Andy Hindle. Yeah, I, Andy I wanted to is. ask him. So you've actually, let me ask Ian since he's here. You've done keynotes before. I would be so nervous. I mean, standing up there on stage in front of like thousands of people. What's that like? The first one is brutal. Right. The first one is brutal because it is going to be 
even if it's not the biggest room in the universe, it's the first time we're like, like, oh, that's your name under the keynote. This guy title. better be good. <laughs> well, no. See, that's the fallacy. Mm-hmm. Audiences universally want the speaker to succeed. Yep. Even if they disagree, they at least want to be entertained. Uh, and so you do have the audience with you for the most part. For me now, it's, um, I mean, people would be shocked probably, yeah, but I'm like, oh no, I have a, I go through a whole process to get myself mentally ready to go do that thing. Um, but to me, I'm just having a conversation with the audience now, right? So it's very comfortable because I can see some smiling faces and I'm desperate to find those in the room. Like I want to find the nodding. <laughs> Where are my head. people at? <laughs> I Well, but also like I need to, I just need a name. I need an anchor point because then I can fold them into the talk, right? Like, oh, you know what? Like, okay, here's Andrew Nash. Like, yeah, I got a slide coming up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him a little trouble. Uh, and but like it, it makes it, it humanizes it. Because otherwise, oh yeah, it's like scary as all get out, right? Because it's just like it's really hard to see. You're worried you're gonna fall. All these other things. But it's the human connection at scale that is just super fun. So David Lee this morning, first keynote, who crushed it, crushed it. So genuine, so interesting about it taking a kind of contrarian view in a room that can be a little hard. Uh, certainly some of them. And the courage to go do that and just confidently having, he was having a conversation with people. It wasn't a keynote, right? And it's really fun. Um, it is surprisingly easier than you might think. But then again, public speaking is one of the things that like a vast majority of people are like, I would rather eat my own head than, you know, speak in front of public. And that could be five people. It's if, Yeah, I was going to say, if you're doing public speaking for 40 people or 4,000 people, is it any different? Shouldn't be. You should just be having a conversation with the people that are in front of you. Um, now. We're talking to thousands of people right now. You are. We are. Around the world. Now, there's, there's right. different. I can't say anything else. No, <laughs> Jim no, Clamps like, doesn't totally say anything else anymore. Frozen. <laughs> Guys, you have a lot to be proud of. What you built. Right? And, um. It's really neat when I bump into people and be like, hey, did you, you know, I, I, I saw you talking to Andy Hill. Did you hear him on the podcast? I'm like, yeah, actually I did. And it was really good. And he was very kind to give me a shout out and, and these other things. Um, you got a lot to be proud of, guys. So Thank good you. work for you guys. Thank you for Thank that. Thank you. I am proud of it. I think, I think we're doing a good job. We'll keep doing it as long cool. as we keep having fun. Yeah. Uh, enough uh, self-congratulatory talk. Let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, Congratulations on your new endeavor, weaveidentity.com. And we'll have a link in our show notes for people to check oh, it out there as well, um, as well as your LinkedIn profile. You can find us on the web, idacpodcast.com, Twitter at idacpodcast, Mastodon at idacpodcast, at infosec.exchange. Thank you very much to Cyber Risk Alliance for all the support they provided us for this entire week. Definitely above and beyond what we were expecting. And I think the quality of the episodes that we had this week are a direct reflection on their investment in making this happen as well. So thank you to Andy, Wendy, others that we worked with on the way. Rebecca, yeah. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up. That was Identiverse 2023. We ended it on a high note. And we'll talk with everyone on the next one. See you in 24. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the Center.